Hello and welcome to a new episode of Other Record Labels. I'm your host, Scott Orr. Today on the show, we're actually talking a lot about college radio. Now, we did an actual episode on the topic of college radio a couple of weeks ago, a couple episodes ago. So make sure you go back and listen to that. But today we're talking with a record label uh, called Comedy Minus One. And you can check them out at comedy-one.com. And it's spelled minus M-I-N-U-S one O-N-E, comedy-one.com. We're talking with John Solomon, who's also a college radio DJ. And so we really camp out on that subject. And, um, I, you know, I know it's it's important and kind of uh, still very exciting for our audience. And so um, I ask uh, John a lot of college radio questions um, that I think will supplement um, the conversation we had uh, with Tiger Bomb a couple episodes ago. So make sure you listen to that. And I, and I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. Thank you so much for being a listener, by the way. And please visit our website, otherrecordlabels.com, and make sure you grab a copy of our latest resource, which is a toolkit. And I'm actually in the process of updating that toolkit with some more resources. So if you've downloaded it, um, make sure you go and download it again. Um, and in a couple weeks from from now, there's going to be even some more great uh, resources in there. So go to otherrecordlabels.com slash toolkit to make sure you grab that and enjoy this interview. Thank you for doing this. This is fun. Uh, it was fun to kind of... Uh, dive into your world online a little bit today and uh, do a bit of research. So are, are you a, a label owner a label owner, or a radio DJ? Do you identify with one title more than the other? Uh, I, I think it depends who I'm talking to and the context <laughs> of the conversation. Sure. I was also a college basketball writer for about 15 years. Oh, wow. And so when I wrote about basketball, radio and music and punk rock and what have you very, very rarely (laughs) enter that orbit. Uh, But I mean, I I think it's maybe a best of both worlds situation Mm. where I've been able to see independent music from a number of different points of view Mm. over the past series of decades. I, I booked a venue in Chicago in the 1990s for a number of years. Mm. And so, you know, I've, I book tours for bands. So I, I, I've seen independent music from a bunch of different vantage points. I would say probably more radio than label. Sure. But that also is because there aren't rock shows at present to go to and see bands that I work with. I I imagine like a radio DJ has a lot in common with the record label owner because, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but both are putting together music that they want other people to hear. Is there truth to that? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think in both cases, I'm trying to share things that mean a lot to me. Hmm. Just the, the end results are different and a radio show is a, a bit more ephemeral right and ideally a, a record is a, a lasting document and, and i suppose you could put a song on the air without having to openly endorse that song whereas with a label you're saying these records are important enough for me to advocate on behalf of the of the of the band or the artist yeah i think also there are bands that i would play on the radio that i would love to do records for but that doesn't necessarily come to fruition. Oh, I see. So sometimes it might be a band who approached me about doing a record and for 
some reason or another, it doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. But I still like what they do enough to play them on the radio. Yeah. And similarly, there are there are bands on other labels I like a whole lot that are are well served where they are. That I still super dig their singles or albums or what have you, and and want to share them. And it's it's nice to have that ability to to be able to share things beyond the label. Has the the work at the radio fed into the A&R aspect of your label in any way? Uh, Maybe a little bit. I think more so, I used to run a label called My Pal God, and there were definitely bands that came up to play on WPRB that I liked a bunch that I ended up doing records for. Mm -hmm. Uh, With Comedy Minus One, I think it's been dealing with a lot more existing known commodities to me. Commodities is a terrible word to use there, but just known (laughs) entities. Um, And so, I don't know. I I don't really think about it from an A&R standpoint so much, personally. I would, you know, you were mentioning writing about college basketball, and and I would imagine, I mean, being at a radio station for a number of years, you would probably witness the rise of independent artists, much in the way that, a sports writer might see someone play in college or in high school and then see them go all the way up to professional. Has that happened with you with, with at a college radio getting a demo from someone who ended up getting nominated for a Grammy later on? Yeah, I, I think absolutely that example. Um, <laughs> so I've been involved with WPRB since 1988. Oh my goodness. Congratulations. Musical landscape has, has changed considerably sure. in, in many, many different <laughs> avenues since then. But, WPRB is located in Princeton, New Jersey, which is about 45 minutes north of Philadelphia, but is fortunate enough to have a transmitter that covers all of Philadelphia with its terrestrial frequency. Mm. And music in Philadelphia was, like for decades, if you were to ask people, what's the biggest band in Philadelphia right now? Like the answer was routinely, and I I love them, but it was the Dead Milkmen for like decades. And then... (laughs) Slowly but surely in the past, you know, 15 years with the Kurt Viles and War on Drugses of the world sure. and stuff like that, I think Philadelphia has made, you know, Waxahachie was from Philadelphia for oh. a while. Like Philadelphia has Sadie from Speedy Ortiz lives in Philadelphia. Like these names all just keep Dr. Dog. Like <laughs> Philadelphia started to define itself by by more than one band and uh, outside of of the Philadelphia region. And when I was recording live performances for my show on a on a weekly basis, to be able to have like, you know, definitely captured from like two thousand and two or three to twenty ten or so, like captured all of that those bands on the on the way up. And uh, so yeah, I, th- I think definitely encountered, groups that now are are more household names when they were just things that uh, the Delaware Valley was proud of. Mm. <laughs> Do you I'm curious about people who work in the I mean we haven't had very many people on this show who who work in the industry as well as have um a, a label in this kind of dual role and I I'm I'm curious running a label 
knowing, you know, from your experience, like of, of the, of the radio knowing, okay, this isn't going to work or this is a waste of time or this is a waste of money. Uh, are there, are there lessons that, that you can bring to the label that you've learned at the station? Yeah. I think that seeing how records are promoted either physically or digitally that are sent to the music department. I mean, I'm, I'm deeply appreciative, especially with, with all sorts of digital downloads and being able to, I mean, I'm constantly previewing stuff for my show on Wednesday nights, but, um, I guess with the label, I do a lot more digital servicing than physical servicing because I certainly had some bad experiences over the years where, you know, a promotion service was sending out a couple hundred CDs and I just as easily could have set a paper bag of money on fire in my backyard and, and had oh, a, a similar end result. Right. So, um, I mean, it's, it's tough. I mean, that, that's, that's always been the biggest issues with label stuff has mm -hmm. just been getting the, the ears that you know would enjoy the things yes. you're working yes. on to actually hear the, hear the thing. And whether that's, radio promotions or press. I mean, there's some people who do great stuff out there, but it, it doesn't always happen. And then I guess the third limb is uh, getting records in physical brick and mortar stores. Right. Um, and so those have all been challenges over the years. But yeah, like being able to see how other labels are sending stuff right. to WPRB... Um, does resonate with me in different ways, both seeing, you know, oh, this is coming with like nine other things from some promotion company. And unless someone has a semblance of what it is, the music director is going to be overwhelmed by it. <sighs> or like, oh, this was very clearly targeted to be sent to this station because they're only sending out, you know, vinyl LPs to 15 stations that they know already are uh, into Mm -hmm. what the label or the, the band is doing. Right, right. I mean, I, I think of a label like uh, 12XU in Austin who sends copies of every release of theirs to WPRB, and they don't need to do that. Like, they could just send a bunch of zeros and ones through the internet, <laughs> but I respect that they they send every LP because they've built up a a relationship with the station where they know that stuff isn't just going to get uh, get sold before I it even makes it to air. I wonder too, I imagine it would make you more empathetic and sympathetic to seeing some of the stuff come through the mail, knowing how hard it is to uh, for people to, yeah. to, to, to be heard. Yeah. 100%. Let's. Uh, we're going to go back to college radio. It's so fascinating to me and I have a lot of questions and I'm, uh, um, I've, I've spent some time at our university radio here in town. And um, I've, I've been in the studio many times and, and there's something really special about it. Um, Wait, but, before, before you go any further, yeah. I, I just need to chat. Are you in, are you in Hamilton? That's correct. Yes. I have been to a Hamilton Cardinals game. Oh, really? I have not been to a Hamilton Cardinals game. What were you doing in Hamilton? Uh, so we have good friends who live in Toronto, and their son is baseball crazy. So oh. every time we get together, uh, we go to some sort of baseball game, and 
Oh, interesting. Let's see, it wasn't last summer. So summer, the previous, like we've been to, uh, so we've I've been to see both the Toronto Maple Leafs Baseball Club and the Hamilton Cardinals of your wow. well, Ontario League. Yeah. I, wait, this, I, I, sorry, just it, it's sure. a very quick story. Uh, so I, uh, <laughs> they had like a, a raffle okay. for like a fifty dollar gift card to a local Italian restaurant. <laughs> okay. And I and I and I won the <laughs> raffle at the game, and I had to go up to the the press box and claim my prize. <laughs> And they asked me some question. I said, I live in New Jersey. And uh, the gentleman from the press box said, sir, might I ask, why are you here? <laughs> and so I gave him the same explanation I gave you now. And I think the in-laws of one of our friends uh, had a lovely, lovely dinner in Hamilton. Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> and then on the, on the way out of town, accidentally heard part of a Loverboy concert and got to run around in the parking lot of the Ticat Stadium. So I had, a, had an excellent oh, experience. Oh, well, you really did get Hamilton. a full tour. I, I'm not sure you would have seen the best parts, but you definitely got a full tour. That's, that's pretty good. Uh, you know, I sorry, you were asking. Well, I, I haven't, I haven't been to. Uh, I'm glad you, um, I'm glad you came here. I haven't actually been to a Cardinals game, although I did see a schedule last summer or two summers ago now, and I thought I should, we should probably go to one of those games. I think our kids would have a blast at it. Um, and then, of course, since the pandemic, now after the pandemic, I'm going to go everywhere. I think I'll just, you know, I won't take anything for granted anymore. Including sure. the Cardinals. Now that's Excellent. that stadium. You were I don't know. Have you ever watched The Handmaid's Tale? That TV show. You know I haven't. Okay, that's one of the few shows I haven't well, finally they, watched. They filmed a on really my big list the past year. A really big scene where they. Um, well, I won't give it spoilers, but they filmed that at the that's um, uh, sports complex where you would have been at. Oh, wild! Little little trivia for you. Okay. Well, I don't know if we still have any of our listeners here, but um, okay. So tell me about the, let's talk about the label comedy minus one. I, this is what I'm really curious about. Can you give me uh, a little details on, on the genesis of all of this and, and, and how it, how it related to perhaps uh, your work at the station? Sure. Well, let me go. So as I said before, I used to run a label called my pal God that I started when I was in college and that's a great name. I did. It's named after a single for an Australian band called God. Their single was called My Pal, and I was sitting in class one day in college trying to think of uh, <laughs> label names, and it made sense. I didn't anticipate how much uh, religious mail it would lead to, but oh. I, I wasn't uh, wasn't it thinking it fully through at the time. Oh gosh, um, like so you mean like your, letters for, to Santa type mail or like hate mail? Uh, no, more like submissions from. Christian artists oh. and, and people thinking that maybe the the ethos of the label was something that it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> so did that for for years and years, and um, just reached a point where, you know, I was using accounting practices that I put in place when I was eighteen, and <laughs> I just it, it felt like I didn't want to do like a like you know how sometimes in comic books they do like a year zero restart. I didn't want to do that. I, I wanted to to just start something new. Mm. And um, so that was probably in 2006 or so, I was thinking about starting a new label from scratch. I, I wrote down a bunch of notes. I, I had a, a bunch of ideas. And then 
an opportunity presented itself to put out the first Bottomless Pit record, which uh, was a couple old friends who were in a band called Silkworm who were near and dear to me. And that seemed like the perfect record to start a new label with. Hmm. And uh, I couldn't have picked uh, a better release. It was definitely at a weird time where CDs were starting to phase out, but full album downloads were very much continuing to be a thing. Hmm. And uh, it went well. And uh, just kind of slowly but surely, like that's sort of the the comedy minus one story is sure, uh, slowly but surely just <laughs> just forge this path forward, not trying to overreach our grasp. Well, so you know, maybe three or four releases a year, uh, and just kind of trying to build off the back of each one that preceded it. That's really interesting that you, instead of rebranding or um, shaking things up or whatever, just completely shut it down and start something new. I've never heard of that approach, but I, I like that approach. Yeah, it, I don't know. It didn't seem fair to the bands that I'd worked with previously with My Pal God to just like hit a big red button right. and, uh, and come out with with something new. Yeah. I don't know. It, 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 it felt, I mean, I, I don't know if I'd still be putting out records if I hadn't made that decision. I mean, it sort of felt like something needed to jumpstart. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm, I'm glad that it all came together the way that it did. I'm glad that you brought this up when you, we were talking about when you were talking about 2006, and, and I think the new label started in 2007. Is that the official birth yeah, year? Yeah, I think the first record came out in like November of 2007, if memory serves. And, but and it, then there there was, I mean, it's amazing how much weight it held, even more so than now. But the first bottomless pit record got a really nice review in Pitchfork in like January. Oh, wow. So like two months down the line. And when they, they had like, you know, best new debut or, or some yeah. phrase like that. And um, that suddenly seemed to get a bunch of distributors on the phone that would stock things that wouldn't stock things wow, previously. Wow, just from that article. I mean, yeah, it was wild. That's um, crazy. And and nothing should should wield that much power. Sure. Um, but but it really helped and it it took a record that was close to getting into the black then like all of a sudden uh it had it had turned to profit. That's um, incredible. So it was yeah, it was it was wild. And so now you're thinking every release is going to go this well. <laughs> yeah, I mean like I mean, they all get there eventually, I suppose. Just <laughs> some, some, uh, some have different pace times than others. You talked about when we're going back to this time of 2007. When I was reading that, I was it was interesting to me because, I, and you've mentioned it. I mean, 2007 CDs were still a thing to do. They were still, I mean, even today, they're still. Um, they can still find a home with some listeners, but back then you, there's no problem to sell them. iTunes, as you mentioned, uh, was, you know, not, uh, 
not brand new, but um, people were buying on iTunes. There were no streaming quite yet. Um, and then I, I, for me, around that time is when I really started to notice vinyl coming back in. I started buying more new vinyl. Did you feel, and, and I'm curious over the past uh, 13, 14 years, did the industry feel volatile to you um, as, as so much was changing all the time? Hmm. I, I don't know. The, the, the ways that I operate feel, to some extent, removed from any semblance of industry. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but as, a, as someone who buys a fair number of records, but also you know, won't pass up a good budget CD, um, <laughs> I would say I definitely found myself buying more and more, you know, $1.99 CDs or what have you. But um, if it was something I really wanted to own, I was going to make sure that I bought, uh, you know, a new LP pressing of it. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to, th it's, it's hard for me to remember how that sea change transpired. But very much the first bottomless pit record the band was doing like a double lp 45 rpm pressing of their record themselves and so i then did the cd through comedy minus one and at the time i think it felt like their vinyl pressing was much more for themselves that, oh, that might not be that might not be completely it, but it it was something that they did because they wanted to make sure that it existed. I see. Yeah, when, like when, a vanity project, now, sort of. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Um, well, now the reverse might be the norm. Hmm. Like I've definitely worked with bands who have been like, we you know, the LP is going to be the thing, but we're still going to run off you know a hundred CDs just so the one hundred people that want this on yeah. CD can yeah. have it. Yeah, that's um, true. But, uh, I mean, the people that I hear from who are frustrated that something is vinyl or digital and not on CD are, are pretty few and far between. And I, I don't know if that's just the nature of the the clientele that I have that are interested in these bands or, sure. or what. Yeah, I'm actually... I don't know. I, I'm actually toying with the idea of doing a short run of CDs on a, on an upcoming release, and I, and I, a part of me is is almost thinks it's it's like coming back around again, and and that's why I want to kind of test that as almost like playing off the nostalgia of them a little bit. But I also feel like they've probably they've become they've come down in price, and you could do now you could do short runs as probably as low as fifty, and so might as well because you know there are still a certain demographic, or even um, it's just a, a, a smaller investment or a smaller, uh, a more affordable way to, for, for fans to show their appreciation at a show. Yeah, so, for sure. Know. And then it's such a, such a huge difference between having 50 CDs in your closet and <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> 500 CDs in your garage. But I've held on to most of the CDs that are in our garage sort of thinking, well... I sell a couple of these every year and, that's right. and everything yep. everything comes around again and <laughs> that's right. They're they're all still in the shrink wrap so uh so yep. someday. 
Yeah, no, I, I think it's a good idea. I wonder your opinion about DSPs, and I, I mean, you're coming from the college radio world, and 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 you've been running the label for uh, a long time to see it to see the streaming services uh, be introduced. Uh, how do you feel about that this streaming landscape that we're we've all kind of had to adapt to? I mean, on one hand, it makes it so much easier for me to, if someone recommends something, listen to it right away. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'm certainly hearing things from all corners of the globe that would have potentially not reached me ordinarily. Sure. Um, I I think from a label standpoint... uh, you know, there are no streaming services at present that we don't have our releases on, but I certainly make sure to promote that they are on certain platforms more so than others. Okay. Like, uh, I don't know. I, I understand the, the reasoning for having records on, say, Spotify, but I don't understand when bands and labels really showcase that right as compared to uh you know the band camps of the world where it there's it so much more is going directly to the artists right so why you're saying why are we always kind of giving them free promotion by promoting the links yeah, to I those mean, albums yeah 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 i mean yeah. It, it seems like like you're 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 really hyping something that like the the return on that you know Twitter post or whatever is mm. just like <laughs> pennies pounded into a powder. Like it's it's not uh, <laughs> when you know if if one person then downloads a record for ten dollars or whatever. Like you've you've that's that's. You know, I yeah, from, no, from I my know vague understanding of numbers, that's more. I know what you mean. I think, and I'm guilty of promoting Spotify only, and and I often have to remind myself to to promote the other links. And and I mean, from a streaming standpoint, I think my numbers are probably and not this is doesn't include Bandcamp, but when it comes to the streaming platforms like I, Apple Music and and Amazon, I I think Spotify accounts for probably closer to 80%. But Oh wow. And so that's probably why I but I also kind of give into this myth that if I promote them then I'm I'm offering up a sacrifice to the Spotify gods that they will maybe huh. put me on a playlist. I think that's circulating. I think that's probably why you see it is that people are are hoping that that the the powers that be at Spotify will feature their music more on a, on a playlist. <laughs> yeah. That's my, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I, uh, maybe just, you know, I'm, I'm so preoccupied with putting together my own playlist that that just doesn't, uh, Oh yeah. I agree with it you. It doesn't, doesn't drive me as, as much, but at the same time, and this might go counter to what I've said before. Like I have, Friends, and I know there are people who are listeners of releases that I do that are Spotify loyalists. Or I have one friend who's like, 
he's my title guy. Like he, mm. everything has to show up on title because I know it'll make him happy. Yeah. Um, so everyone has their own Absolutely. service. So I, so I think to limit yourself to, oh, this is going to be Bandcamp only, or oh, this is going to be an iTunes exclusive or what have you, uh, runs counter to ideally it, it reaching as many theoretical ears as possible. I totally agree with you. And I think, you know, uh, I think that we always seem to think that everyone listens to music the same way. Everyone behaves the same as us. And, and I always have to remind myself, there, like you said, there are title people out there. There are CD-only people out there. There's Bandcamp-only people out there. Um, I, always, I always forget to... Um, respect everyone's way of, of discovering and consuming music. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are YouTube only people out That's there. That's true. And, That's true. And, and I think that as we're jumping from world to world, being around new crops of 18 to 20 year old students coming into a community radio station, hmm. uh, definitely, shows me not painting with a broad brush, but like, yeah, there are, there are kids who are going to do their shows entirely off of Spotify. There are kids that are going to do their shows entirely from the station's physical library. (laughs) There are some that are going to, uh, you know, find a, a medium between the two, but it, but it's interesting just to see the listening habits of people in a totally different peer group than mine, but we're all sort of in different ways dedicating ourselves to the craft of making good radio. I uh, I just spoke with a, a person who um, cuts lathes um, for a living. Oh, neat. And uh, she was telling me that um, she gets uh, requests all the time to um, press or to cut uh, people's Spotify playlists. People will call her and say, here's my Spotify playlist. Can you put this on vinyl for me? <laughs> and she, that she does wild. it. Isn't that crazy? Talk about like a, a unique way to listen. <laughs> um, let's talk about college radio. I want to go back and I want to camp out on this subject for a little bit. Um, Please. Do you, do you think, I won't assume your answer is yes, but I... I, I I'm sure it is, but do you think it matters for indie artists today? Should should indie artists and specifically indie record labels be putting together some sort of college radio strategy when they release new records? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, um, <laughs> but I don't, but I don't, but I don't, sure, <laughs> uh, but but I don't think it needs to be like I said before with the the setting money on fire. Like there are ways where you can figure out who the like-minded allies are out there. Okay. And if it's 15 to 20 stations, instead of casting this absurd net of like, right. You know, 500 places that, you know, if you're sending them CDs or whatever, they're all going to be, you know, tomorrow's landfill. Like, uh, yeah. Um, and, and I think that's where, and I and I see this. I, I feel I'm, I'm 
answering the question, I promise. But I, <laughs> I see it when people contact me about releasing records where there's such an obvious difference between someone who has taken the time to write a personalized message that references past Comedy Minus One releases or bands and how their record fits in that world hmm. versus, oh, I found a list of every independent record label yes. online yeah. and bcc <laughs> them all. Like the same thing happens with radio. Okay. And yes. so to be able to see like, oh, I really, I love your show or I love your station. When I was 15, I heard this on it. Or, oh, I see that you played, I don't know, pick three bands from yeah. last yeah. night's show. And, and I think that what I do fits in well with advanced bass, sumac and screaming bamboo, right? Like just going off of yesterday's <laughs> show. Um, and, and then like you're, you're finding your, you're finding your people as compared to just casting this like gigantic net that everything's going to probably slip through. So I found it daunting because there's so many stations out there. And in Canada, we, we have a lot as well. And how do you, you're saying to pick the like-minded uh, or, or something that fits your sound. How do you find that? How do you, how do you do that process of narrowing them down? That's an excellent question. Um, I know that I benefit from the label side from receiving charts from other stations already. Mm. But I think maybe one way of doing it is figuring out a band or a record that you feel is comparable in style, sound, size, scope to mm -hmm. where you are or where you reasonably want to be and see who's playing that. Hmm. Like try and search online and see what charts you can pull up from uh, independent great. record stations. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I, I don't think it's as... Now granted, I haven't had to do this in a while, but I don't think it's as difficult as that sounds like most college stations independent stations community stations have their weekly top 30s available online you know so many stations use spinatron for playlists you can ostensibly search that um you know i think there there are ways that you could uh ways you could do it where you can sort of figure out like all right i'm going to pick these four bands and let me see what shows I can find that are, are, I mean, like, let's put it this way. And, and I know I'm, I'm jumping around a little <laughs> bit and for that, I apologize. <laughs> That's great. One of my, one of my big ways that I decide things that I'm going to listen to that I'm not previously familiar with is if I see two or more people I know talking about a record that don't know each other, yeah. I will then prioritize listening to that. I agree. I 100% agree. And, you know, I mean, sometimes it is like all friends in one circle talking about the same record, and like that can be pretty darn rewarding too. But if it is, you know, I have a good friend who's a DJ and a music writer at a radio station in Boston. If she's playing a record 
and also, you know, a friend who's at a different station in Chicago is talking about the same thing. And I know that they're, they've come to it from different paths because the only commonality between the two of them is me. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to check it out like that. Um, one of my favorite records that came out last year was an album by a band called Sweeping Promises. Okay. And it it literally went from, I have not heard of this band, to then I saw there's some a graphic designer online uh-huh. who said he was listening to it. <laughs> a woman who's in a, a Facebook group I'm in where people post pictures of the records they're playing. Oh, nice. Posted it. And then a friend who's a comedian had it in their Instagram story. And so when all three of those people that I know have nothing else in common besides this record, we're talking about it. Right. I was like, all right, when I get up tomorrow morning, I'm listening to the <laughs> Sweeping Promises record. This and, yeah. uh, and I bought a copy of the LP before Side A had finished streaming. Like wow. it was I right have, up my alley. I have to say, well, first of all, I'm going to listen to that after this, but I have to say that is 100% the same for me. And I now will trust that process almost as if it is like a, um, you know, it, it it works all the time, but I will trust that process where, and it's always those diverse places where you see it, the artwork is posted somewhere and then somebody's posting in live in studio, then you see it on a forum, then you, you know, one of your friends posts about it. But yeah, I totally trust that process. And that's a good learning experience as a record label to know we've got to, do as much as we can to promote this record because we don't know what straw is going to break the camel's back of, of a future listener. Yeah, for sure. And 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 I think it's like, uh, I mean, I guess the acronym KYEO is usually keep your eyes open, but in this case, it's just keep your ears open. Mm-hmm. And uh, and just, you know, I I've tried from a, you know, I've been doing radio since, geez, Reagan was president. But at the same time, like I'm, I'm never been one to rest on my laurels. So I'm always, I have, I guess, what my wife refers to as the seeker gene, where I'm always seeking stuff out. And so, uh. um, I think that that seeker gene that draws people to new music can also be something that bands can utilize, whether it's, you know, seeking out, oh, it turns out there's this great DJ at this station in Pittsburgh. I need to make sure that they're someone that I'm always sending stuff to. Mm. Oh, there's uh, someone who has a, you know, a music blog in uh, Sheffield, England. Like, I got to make sure that they're on my digital servicing list. Um, Just, you know, Paying attention, saying pay attention sounds rude. And <laughs> sure. that's not really what I mean, sure. but just like, like be, you know, whether it's, you know, keeping a little scratch pad to write down names of possible allies or, or what have you, just like keeping those, those ears open. Are, uh, are there services is, that is rewarding? Are there services that do any sort of pitching to radio? I mean, I have a bad association with pitching to college radio because I remember, not that I've used any, but I remember these services you would find in the back pages of Paste or Electronic Musician 
in the early days oh, of sure. the internet. Uh, uh, um, you know, and they would always, you know, cost a certain amount. They felt scammy. They felt sketchy. Uh, are there services today that are effective in your, in your opinion? There are services today. Uh, no, no, I, 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 I think there are, you know, I, from a, from the putting, you know, switching hats and putting the radio hat back on, like there are definitely people who do independent college radio servicing that seem to send out stuff that, that ends up being cool. Um, but also there are labels that do it directly that for whatever reason or another have my email that are just as effective for me, but that I can only speak for me in that regard. Um, Interesting. But then there are also like services that either do digital servicing that the number of things that I end up listening to or end up playing like the, the hit to miss ratio is, is skewed in the wrong direction. I see pretty, pretty strong. But again, I'm only speaking for my own experience. Yeah, no, that's fair. But then I see at the radio station proper, um, as the person who picks up the physical mail once or twice a week, uh, I definitely see, you know, all sorts of services that are sending stuff and, and some are, you know, maybe working with more labels or clients or customers or whatever you want to call them than others. But I don't, I don't have the, I mean, I'm, I, I have the experience of being a DJ and seeing what comes in to the music department, but I'm, I'm not a music director, so I'm not being called for tracking and mm-hmm. charting mm-hmm. and stuff like that right. from right. labels and these services. So I don't know who's like, who's pushier than others and, <laughs> right. and who... Who is, I mean, I just go off of what ends up in my inbox or to a lesser extent mailbox. And, uh, and then, you know, you have to kind of, you can't hear everything. So just trying to pick and choose what I listen to. There would be a, uh, like a, uh, a suspicion, um, that, or, or a superstition that, um, perhaps physical would have a better chance than digital submissions. Is, is that true in any way? Well, WPRB is a little bit unique in the sense that when we are not all distanced and separate from the studios because of a pandemic, <laughs> the music director doesn't really add digital stuff to the library. Okay. So it's all CD and vinyl. People love cassettes. Cassettes are the DJ's worst friend. Yeah. They're impossible to keep. Oh, for sure. So... um uh, you know, definitely can play stuff from computer, but just things don't get added that are digital only. In some cases, some stuff will be burned to be put in the physical library. So, you know, labels like I mentioned 12XU earlier, there's a great like new wave post-punk reissue label called Dark Entries that sends all of their releases in physical form no matter how elaborate the LP to WPRB. And I think part of that is because the guy who runs that label grew up listening to WPRB. <laughs> so he knows that, that it matters yeah. to him. Sure. 
that that stuff ends up in the library. Um, yeah, I, I think just most people have a general understanding of how expensive records are to make. So when a label takes the time to send a record to the station, I, I, I think it maybe gets a little bit more attention yeah, than a, than a yeah. promo CDR. Um, right. But at the same time, there are, and this is a change that I've noticed more in recent years, um, there definitely were DJs that would only play CDs that didn't know how to operate the turntable, even though they had gone through the training <laughs> on how to use it. Like a CD was just so much easier to queue up than a record. Yeah. But I, I've noticed a little bit of a sea change, let's say in the past five years, both with student and community DJs alike, that um, the record player is not as daunting a machine as maybe it, it was in... 2017. So I want to ask you a question about this submission process. And um, I, I want to ask you for a lack of a better term about the ROI for, for the label and, and for the artist sending this record, considering we're, we're talking about um, potentially if, if we're talking physical, if it's a, if it's a seven inch or a 12 inch, um, it could be anywhere between 20 or $30 for me to ship to the U S it's very expensive. Uh, even a CD, um, for somebody, this could be a $5, uh, investment to send at times, however many radio stations, what is the return? What is the ideal, um, result for, for an artist or for a label in your opinion? See, See, that's the, that's the rub, isn't it? Like, you just don't know until they, they go out, which is why I'm such a proponent of physical media, but I don't really send physical media to radio stations anymore, except if it's by request. Because, mm. you know, when you're dealing with such small pressings of 300 to 500 to 1,000 to 1,500 records, like, every one of those matters in that's a right. way. yeah. Um, so like I used to work with a distributor that I, I don't go through anymore where invariably at least one box of records that went to them arrived damaged. Mm. And it's like, if that's 25 records out of 500, like that's a lot of records that yeah. are now not sellable. That's right. Like you've now gone from a pressing of 500 to like, Oh, all the, corners on 25 of them are bent like your cost per unit goes up yeah and and um now thankfully i would send those via ups and have photos where it's like i double box these i don't know how you continually like drop these out of a third story window <laughs> um so i'd get reimbursed but like it hurt yeah like it did you know it hurt my heart to, uh, yeah. to discover that this you know like it would take two or three tries to get Brutal. An unscathed box to this distributor. Um, so, I mean, it's it's so much easier to do digital servicing, hmm. and there there are great services that you can. I mean, I do both press and radio through Promo Jukebox, and that's what like thirty four dollars for a one time servicing. You know, and mm -hmm. and and I add people 
to the list and and remove sometimes but you know it's it's not an enormous list but it's something and like that there's not a the risk reward there is is uh like it's not really it's not going to break the bank it's yeah. not going to add like an extra yeah. dollar per release or what have you or maybe even more um but if a station that i like a lot like say WFMU, if their music director gets in touch and says, oh, we'd love to have a physical copy of the oh, sure. Savak yeah. record or what have you. Like, of course I'm going to send them a copy. Sure. And if it's one of the the dinged up copies that got battered in distribution, <laughs> like I've seen what a college radio library looks <laughs> yeah. like. Like a, a bent corner is not going to dissuade anyone. <laughs> That's um, a good point. But but it's not, uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm personally dealing on such a, like such a tightrope where, you know, to get to that break even point, um, it's just hard for me to imagine. Like there's a record I worked on where it would be in the black by now, but ended up deciding the band and I to hire a PR firm to work the record. Mm -hmm. And that was terrible. Mm. Like the the end result was all of the successes were things that either the band or I arranged on our own. Sure. Um, yeah. And so for whatever reason, like it just didn't work. It was a company that had a great track record. Like it should have, it should have been a hit. Yeah. Not, not sales wise, but like it should have been a successful partnership. Right. I and see. it wasn't. Yeah. And like that has been an albatross hanging over this release. You know, now I think it's like, $370 away from the black finally or something like that. Wow. But there was like an extra zero at the beginning, at the end of that yeah. number because of uh, hiring a, a publicist. Right. And, uh, you know, that isn't always the case, but it's like, like I said, it's, it's just like the, the growth of the label has been really cautious and incremental because especially now that I seem to do a preponderance of double LPs, like <laughs> don't want the next one to be the one that like destroys all the plans for the, you know, the, the five or six releases that are theoretical to follow. Sure. So as from a label, let me ask you the, the second part of that previous question again, the, from your perspective as a, a label owner, send, sending a record to a radio station, what um, comes out when the record when the radio station starts to play that record? Why is that a good thing for you as a label and, and and for the artist? I think it's a good thing for the label and the artist when you hear from a customer who says, "Hey, I heard this on W blank mm -hmm. blank blank mm -hmm. or K one two three or some web station." Mm -hmm. And hearing it is why I am buying this record today. That's true. Mm -hmm. And uh, and hopefully, it's not just the one person. <laughs> That's a good point, John. Thank you so much for doing this. This has been a joy to talk to you. Oh, my pleasure. This is this is really like I can you know, obviously. Your questions have been good, and and I seem to have things to say about them. So you know, keep them, 
<laughs> Keep them coming if you so choose. Uh, how how is the past fourteen years gone? Uh, I think I think fourteen fourteen in a bit um, with the label it, is uh, is every year have its own experiences. Have there have there been ups and downs or years that went better than others? Yeah, and and I think that like the 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 pace is so glacial. <laughs> in a sense that like I spent five or six years working on reissuing the second Silkworm album, Libertine. And that like there were, we had to switch pressing plants because there were, there were issues that couldn't be resolved and it just, it just took freaking forever. <laughs> um, but it ended up being something that I was super proud of. And then the I thought, oh, the doing the third Silkworm record on vinyl for the first time, that'll be a, a breeze. <laughs> and it was sort of by comparison, but it also took a very, very long time. So I, I think it's, I mean, I keep coming back to these like themes of just moving like cautiously and slowly. But um I mean, it's been great. I'm really proud of the catalog and I'm, you know, I, there are a couple things that I wish could have come out that never did and, and some things that I'm still hoping will happen, but it's, uh, you know, like, I, I mean, I wish I could put out everything I wanted to, but it really is this like, all right, what are the three to five records going to be that I focus all of my attention on for a year while thinking about like, Okay, maybe this will happen in 2022 or 2023. Yeah, um, yeah. So sorry, that was a that was a little bit of a, no, it's, an all over the place answer. I would say the biggest hurdle for me, maybe this is more what you wanted, was um, constantly hearing from customers or potential customers outside of the United States of America who would either reluctantly pay exorbitant shipping yes or refuse to pay shipping yes and 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 reach a point where the records in their cart they're about to order it and they're like man this is going to double yes uh, the yeah. price of my order 100% so yeah that's so I, sad i it it's rough yeah. and and so uh getting a distribution deal with a distributor that can get things in record stores worldwide was like the final piece of the puzzle. Oh, great. Because um, like I was very happy with how things were going digitally. I was very happy with uh, direct to customer sales, you know, but, you know, knowing that people in England who were ordering records, like yeah. they were doing it not because they wanted to, but because they had to. Yeah. So now when I see someone has added something to a, a cart online in, say, France and doesn't complete the order to be able to write them directly and say, hey, I, I see that you added this to your cart two days ago and didn't finish the order. Just to let you know, your local record store can order those four titles oh, for you. Oh, great. That's amazing. Um, yeah, it, it really, I mean, it was... Like I spent most of getting all the years confused. I've spent most of 2019 like updating spreadsheets and collecting metadata and getting 
information into portals so that, you know, a transition to a distributor could be seamless. And I was, I mean, I can admit it, I was pretty wary about working with a company that did both digital and physical because that, that felt... Oh, and you, know, you, you were required to give both, basically? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I don't know if requ- required. Sure, I, I, I couldn't I, think it, of it better. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Sorry, I didn't mean to be like. No, no, no. I know. I just focusing could, yeah. on a specific word there, but like, yeah, I, I, uh, and it turns out they do both really well. That's and, great. And and on the digital end, they have a team that really seems to go to bat for for placement on digital sites and stuff that awesome. I'd never really thought of before. So, um, it's it's getting there, and I think with two or three things that are in the pipeline that haven't been announced yet that I wish I could talk about. <laughs> um, uh, I think there there are international audiences there for both bands, history has proven, and so the fact that it's not going to be, I mean, as much as I love packaging up orders, um, <laughs> uh, I, I think the fact that people can get stuff in stores is kind of a, a win-win-win where it's good for the label, it's good for the distributor, and it's good for the record store. So It's amazing. I, and, and that's a real sore spot for me because I would be one of those international customers and, and, and Canada isn't uh, really, um, doesn't have that much better of a, of a rate from America than, than overseas does, surprisingly. Um, yeah, I think like a, a single LP from my front door to yours right now is like sixteen dollars and twenty five cents. Yeah, and that you know, and that and the other part of that is sixteen dollars US is twenty dollars in, in my money. Right. You know? So yeah, yeah. You know, I'm looking at that, and and the other thing that really burns is that when I the default shipping option is America, and so the, for America, for some, I've seen pricing a dollar ninety nine or four dollars or five dollars for you know uh, shipping within America that's the default shipping I see and then when I change it to Canadian it goes up to 16 or to twenty dollars us oh sure so <laughs> you realize and it's it's so hard because I want to support the label I want to support you know I've seen labels in America that are selling t-shirts and sweatshirts that I would love to get but with the the conversion and I and I imagine for our UK friends it's only getting worse with Brexit. But I, I just there's things that I want um, to buy and to support everyone involved. But when you start to do that math, like you say, it doubles the the cost of the vinyl. Um, yeah, and I don't know exactly how this is going to work. And this might be a little too far in the weeds. And mm-hmm. if it is, I apologize. <laughs> but I know at the end of last year. Uh, I, for my online store, I use Shop Shopify, okay. And Shopify had all sorts of VAT information that you now had to add in a post Brexit world, right, right. Where instead of, and I, this is something I I don't know as much about as I'd like. I guess ordinarily a customer in the United Kingdom the tax would be collected when their record arrived. Okay. And so in this yeah. case, they're, I think, I hope I have this right. Correct me if I'm wrong. Let's go to the phones. Um, <laughs> but uh, the tax is now collected beforehand, so you're adding another 20% on top of that. That's crazy. So all the more reason for 
supporting yeah. your local mom and pop record store. Well, and I've seen a lot of labels complaining about that situation. I don't know what the the definitive thing is. I, I would be so surprised if if uh, um, American labels are required to collect and remit a tax from a country that they're not. I, I would just be surprised if that's the case. Um, how do they even manage that? What if you don't do it? I, I I don't really understand what's going on with that. Yeah, I was just delighted that I seemed to have filled out whatever information they were requesting for specific countries correctly, and uh, I guess the the rest will right the pieces will land where they may. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I'm going to keep an eye on that and see what that's like. But well, good for you for the distribution. I <clears throat> I've been trying to keep ordering things through my record store. And um, that is a really tough thing because I really do think, you know, a lot of these, uh, when you get a record made, a band can sell a record for $19.99 and make a profit on it. And so, but by the time it goes through a distributor and record store, or if it's, if it's going through one of these shipping services, then the fan is now paying a lot more for it. So, I hope we can just find a solution all around because I probably would buy way more records than I already do uh, if if I could figure out the uh, shipping issues. Yeah, and I mean, I'm sure I'm sure you you have already talked about this with other folks, but the records records are great, but they're really expensive to make. And mm-hmm. then when you add twenty five percent to get it to a distributor and another twenty five percent to get it to a store. They're really, you, you, it's an investment. Yeah. And yeah. on top of that, sort of like I alluded to with uh, the one of the Silkworm reissues, like unlike a CD, oh my goodness, there's so many different things that can go wrong uh-huh. making yeah. a record. Like I have legit test pressing listening PTSD <laughs> where there are records that I loved where then having to listen to them closely, like running a stopwatch to write down. So what I end up doing, and and maybe this is overkill, (laughs) uh, I'll listen to a test pressing, running a timer, and jot down pops and ticks and what have you. Yeah. Set all that information aside, listen to a second test pressing, do the exact same thing, and then compare what matches up. Right. And it's only the only the times that match up. That's the problem. That are then concerned. That's right. Yes. Um, but where did that problem come from? Is it the lacquer? Is it the mother? Is it some ghost in the machine? Mm-hmm. Is it you know there? And then it's just now we have. Do we have to recut this? Do we, it's just it's. And the, if you do, it delays the process by three yep. or four weeks. And then, and then it might be uh, like, man, that moment of opening the box and making sure the jackets look like they're supposed to, and the right record is in them. <laughs> We've talked about that. The, <laughs> they put the A, B, and C and D labels on the appropriate sides, and there's no, like, one of the first vinyl records that I did, uh, and this was back in like in the comedy minus one era. So back in like 2008 or so Mm -hmm. the pressing plant also did the jackets and I guess whatever file the jacket design was in didn't come through properly or they didn't have the right software 
So some genius at the pressing plant uh, tried to retype all of the text (laughs) and was loaded with typos. Oh, my goodness. And we caught all of them, but one on the spine. Oh, on the spine. And that moment of picking up the LP and looking at the spine and realizing the band's name had an extra S in it was crushing. Yeah. And they made all new jackets and they made it as right as they could, but it was just one of those moments where like being so excited to look at this final product that we had all worked so hard on. And then it was brutal kind of heartbreaking, brutal, humiliating, whatever you want to call it. Like, I don't know if anyone who owns the wrong version of that record even notices. Yeah. But when I see them in the basement, when I go to package records every day, yeah, <laughs> I think about it. Well, that you know, and that's interesting. And I mean, we could talk about vinyl forever. And 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 as a music fan, and I love vinyl. I love my vinyl on display. I love the the um, religious experience of taking it out and putting it on the record player. I do love it. Um, but from the label side, from the artist side, anything under 300 units, and it's pretty much just a vanity project. It's to appease a certain group of people. It's to give us content to share on social media. It's to to put our, our music into physical form so that we can prove to our grandkids it exists. But it's not a way to pay the bills. It's, you know, yeah. I don't know if you agree with that. No, I think I think I do. I'll uh, I'll agree with you on that one Thank for you. sure. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I've have I, I think three hundred is the smallest pressing that I've done for a comedy minus one release mm-hmm. in physical form, partially because, at least at the outset, it was hard to find pressing plants that would do sure. sub five hundred runs, and then if you're doing three hundred LPs, best of luck then finding a place that does jackets that will do fewer than 500, 500 jackets. Yeah. So well, from what I understand up with from what I understand most plants will do always do 500 jackets and then either discard the other 200 or keep it on their shelves for when you reorder. But I think oh, you do for sure. I think you always get charged for 500. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's and then a, like the yeah. price breaks, you know, the price break at 1000 is always so much better than 500. It's just like it 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 gets tempting. Yeah, it gets tempting, and it's always nice to have extra stuff to 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 keep your garage and basement full. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> to stack other boxes on top of. <laughs> well, it's been so fun to talk to you. Thank you so much for your wisdom on college radio, and and congratulations on on all the years at the station and and uh, and with the label. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, this was this was really, really fun. I'm I'm looking forward to subscribing to the podcast and looking forward to listening to future episodes. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to go to comedy-one.com and check out that great label and give John a follow on Twitter as well. 
Um, I think there's some incredible uh, resources and some information to be had um, by following other labels and kind of learning from each other. I think that's really good. So please uh, subscribe to the show if you haven't already. And thanks, thank again, for, uh, but, but thank you again for being a listener. I really, really do appreciate it. Go to otherrecordlabels.com. Um, where there's a bunch of resources for you and links to our previous shows, as well as some new stuff coming up, uh, including the new book. Thanks very much.